Hello, and welcome to the John 315 Podcast, the show where we break open the mysteries of the most popular and misunderstood Bible verses and put them back into context. I am your host. They call me Jonathan, has been in college for a decade, Van Shank. And here is my co-host. They call him Jeremy, quit while he was ahead, Swingle. Now, Jeremy, why do they call you quit while he was ahead swingle well because unlike john i had the good sense to leave after one semester of grad school (laughs) got my undergrad finished it and then i did one semester of grad school and then i realized i actually wanted to be an adult (laughs) and 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 pay my bills (laughs) totally where i had exactly the opposite inclination i was like oh my goodness the real world is terrifying let me just stay in this like on this hamster wheel of college for my entire life (laughs) i will say in defense of myself though that um in addition to all the greek that i took in my undergrad in which i did a bible degree i was able to do an advanced exegesis course in greek in my one semester of uh of seminary so you guys are getting your money's worth on this podcast i may not have an mdiv but i know what i'm talking about at least in terms of greek <laughs> yes that's true I, I think we've mentioned like twice as much hebrew so far on the podcast than greek <laughs> <laughs> and we will in fact extend that today with a little more hebrew for you oh well with that uh, transition right there how about we get into the content cut the chit chat let's crack open the word Yeah, John, today is going to be a fun one because we are actually doing a listener uh, submission. So someone suggested this episode to us and we were like, yep, that sounds good. Uh, We actually had a few suggestions um, from listeners so far that, that we are considering doing at some point later down the road. But this one worked really well as kind of a second part to our topic about money. And so it just kind of works to do it right now. And today we're looking at uh, these two little verses in First Chronicles chapter 4, uh, verses 9 and 10. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and read them for you all. Jabez was more honorable than his brothers, and his mother called his name Jabez, saying, Because I bore him in pain. Jabez called upon the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my border, and that your hand might be with me and that you would keep me from harm so that it might not bring me pain. And God granted what he asked. So these two little verses right here uh, (laughs) are kind of the basis of a really popular book. And if you weren't around in the early 2000s, or if you were kind of young, which frankly, John and I were pretty young as well. (laughs) But you know, we do have listeners who I'm sure really don't know this book even more. Um, There was this book called The Prayer of Jabez by a guy named Bruce Wilkinson. Um, And uh, to say that this book was popular was kind of an understatement. I mean, this like flew off the storms of Christian bookshelves. This was every evangelical church in America had like a discussion group about this stupid little book, (laughs) which I'm already (laughs) revealing kind of my opinion about it. Um, (laughs) Well, we are in the misconceptions section of the podcast, so if people couldn't (laughs) figure it out already. Right. So now here's the thing. We want to focus on the text itself. (laughs) You know, the Bible, the Bible text, not the book um, or the author, you know, of this of this book. Um, We want to focus on the Bible in this podcast. This is a circumstance, though. Right. We're not exegeting the prayer of Jabez. We're exegeting First Chronicles. Precisely. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, And uh, 
This is a circumstance, though, where the book was like so popular that it catapulted these otherwise completely unknown verses into mass popularity. So, <laughs> like, it's sort of impossible to separate these two verses from this, you know, monumental event in the 2000s where this dude wrote a bad book about him. Because <laughs> um, really, these two verses are just in the middle of this random genealogy. Uh, <laughs> and all of a sudden you get this comment about this guy named Jabez and he made a prayer. So it's, you know, normally not the kind of thing people will put on, you know, candles and sell in Christian bookstores. Uh, but it has become that. <laughs> so... Pretty much, we, we sort of have to critique this book, but, but even that being said, we're going to sort of summarize the problems with the book in this opening section so that we don't have to just dunk on Bruce Wilkinson the whole time. Um, <laughs> yeah, and then hopefully, hopefully quickly pivot to uh, uh, like actually good exegesis of what the, uh, um, what the passage is actually about. And John, we've actually, we've used that word a few times this episode and maybe before in this podcast, the word exegesis. Do you want to just like quickly explain kind of that weird word for those who don't know it? Yes, for sure. So uh, exegesis, uh, correct me, Jeremy, it, it's it's a Greek word, right? It comes from Greek, you know, roots, prefixes, etc. Okay, yeah, like so a lot of English words do. Totally. So, so exegesis is a, a, basically it's the idea that you are like coming to a text and it, usually it's about the Bible, but it's you're you're coming to a text and you're, you're seeking to like pull out from the text what it is that the text is trying to communicate to you. And you, you do that by like looking at what does the text say? How were its sentences constructed? Like what, what is the author trying to communicate? Now, this is in uh, contrast to another fancy kind of loan word from Greek, and that is eisegesis. So not exegesis, but eisegesis. And eisegesis means that you are coming to the text and you are bringing with you your own idea about what the text is supposed to say and then reading into it your ideas rather than pulling out from it what the text's ideas are. So, you know, this is... Uh, so the, 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 these are kind of the words that um, get used a lot of like, you know, exegesis or eisegesis. Are you pulling out from the text what it's saying or are you putting into the text what you think it should say? Right. And we definitely want to be doing exegesis, not eisegesis. Exactly. <laughs> There's in addition, some have coined a third term, which I really love. Um, narcegesis, which is <laughs> not a word. It's not a real word. <laughs> But uh, what it means is um, it's a combination of narcissism and exegesis. <laughs> so what you're it not means just is you're reading, reading in your own ideas into the Bible <laughs> instead of reading the context of the Bible into it. So it's sort of an advanced, especially negative version of, of eisegesis. And actually, uh, I wasn't thinking about this when preparing this episode, but there is a bit of narcissism in the prayer of Jabez, the book by Bruce Wilkinson, not the <laughs> First Chronicles text. So we might have good cause to use that word um, today. So if you're paying attention, uh, keep in mind those those definitions of those words. <laughs> so that being said, uh, let's talk a little bit about um, just what this book's about. Um, and we're not going to like summarize the entire thing, but I think it's revealing if we quote from the foreword to the book uh the author directly states his purpose in writing the book there and and it's just kind of revealing so listen quote i want to teach you how to pray a daring prayer that god always answers 
It is brief, only one sentence with four parts, but I believe it contains the key to a life of extraordinary favor with God. In fact, thousands of believers who are applying its truths are seeing miracles happen on a regular basis. End quote. There's just so many issues with this. Like one, some of the things that just jump out to me immediately is, you know, you know so let's let's actually before we jump into this, let's just read the first Chronicles four, nine and ten verses again, just so it's like fresh in your mind. Uh, so, you know, Jabez was more honorable than his brothers. His mother called his name Jabez, saying, because I bore him in pain. Jabez called upon the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my border, that your hand might be with me, and that you would keep me from harm so that it might not bring me pain. And God granted what he asked. Now, that over against this idea of, you know, what Wilkinson is saying, is saying, like, I'm going to teach you how to pray a daring prayer, like, as if the prayer of Jabez, like this prayer that Jabez says is, you know, some kind of, like, structured prayer that's been like handed down to us that we could pray it also like you know our father who art in heaven or you, you know something like that which is <laughs> i mean it's the it's in the middle of a genealogy this isn't like a like a structured prayer this isn't like a psalm or you know something it's, like that. yeah like little did we know the secret to actually living a fulfilling christian life this whole time was smack dab in the middle of first chronicles 4 forget the lord's prayer right <laughs> yeah totally it's like you know and and on top of that this idea that like you know this daring prayer that like god always answers and immediately i'm like wait what do you what do you mean god always answers like it, i mean god answered this prayer for jabez like i mean that's what the text says that like god answers his prayer but why does that mean that god will answer it if anybody like m you know happens to say this prayer like like why why does saying this prayer like guarantee that God's going to like cash in on this for you. Like, I, I, I don't see that anywhere in the text. Well, yeah. And I think it's kind of like almost coming across as the prayer contains the key to a life of favor with God. Like it's like magic words as it's a mantra, right? Um, that, that you can repeat. And unfortunately that's the issue with, with a lot of Christian teaching about prayer. Um, like it's it just kind of treated as uh, abracadabra, alakazam kind of stuff, you know? Um, so I don't know. I, it's, is it that you say these words and it's like a magic secret is unlocked or is it rather that a person who already has favor with God is likely to give a sort of like prayer for need and protection like this and is likely to be answered by God when he prays for those needs? Like, you know, like, I don't know, especially because the text says Jabez was more honorable than his brothers. That would lead me to think that we should attempt to be more like Jabez by being honorable rather than emulating his exact prayer. And then we can expect our prayers to be, I guess, answered more, more frequently by God. I don't know. Just immediate thoughts about that passage is it seems like it's saying the prayer is what was the striking thing here. And if we just pray that exactly, then we'll be blessed instead of, well... <laughs> you know, maybe there's a certain kind of person who God won't answer that prayer for, or a certain circumstance where even if the person praying it, you know, uh, is is a righteous person, is an honorable person, then then God knows that that's not what actually that person needs at the time. And I also love this, uh, <laughs> thousands of believers are seeing miracles happen on a regular basis. This might be nitpicking a little bit, but I don't think it is. I don't know. I, I just get so annoyed when people like talk about miracles as though they are something that should happen to everyone. Um, 
or, or like on a regular basis. Obviously, there's an extent to which like everything that ever exists is a miracle because God created it. But that's not really what miracles mean. Like by definition, miracles mean something extraordinary and unusual, something that the vast majority of human beings aren't going to experience. (laughs) Yeah, like like the whole point is that it doesn't happen regularly. Right. Like, yeah, we should definitely do an episode on miracles one day in this podcast um, because there's a lot of misconceptions about them. But I mean, it is definitionally inconsistent to say that miracles happen to everybody or on a regular basis. Um, Unless by miracle, we mean something like salvation, you know, receiving the Holy Spirit creation, which, you know, under a really loose definition, those are miracles. But I don't think that's what people are thinking about. They're thinking about, you know, uh, strange happenings, right? Parting the Red Sea, maybe not that huge, but people miraculously being healed, right? That stuff doesn't happen to everybody. And it certainly doesn't happen to everybody every day. So I also take issue with that, like this idea that we should expect God to do miracles as though we can sort of force it out of him with, by saying a mantric prayer. <laughs> like that's, that's kind of what I'm seeing in this forward alone. And finally, before we move on to first Chronicles for itself, John, I just want to point out that uh, <laughs> there, there's a lot about this book that is kind of prosperity gospel ish. And I think it's important to distinguish between kind of the more like obvious or overt prosperity gospel. And that would be people like Joel Osteen is the famous punching bag, right? We all, we all love to, to talk, uh, talk a little negatively about um, preaching more or less, you know, that if, if you just say the right things, if you believe that, that you'll not have any problems in your life, your finances will be good. You'll be healthy. You'll be, you know, wealthy and wise. sort of these things, but never mentions the gospel never talks about sin and repentance, right? So that would be like Joel Osteen. And, you know, I think the worst that gets is someone like Kenneth Copeland, who, if you don't know who he is, I won't go into him. I think he's the probably the worst I've seen of that. Um, so if of, you don't know who Kenneth Copeland is, you just, you're, you're probably better not knowing. Good. Yes. Don't, don't uh, know. He's, he, he goes far beyond even people like Osteen by, you know, basically saying, if you give money to my ministry, then, you know, you won't get sick and die. And, this stuff especially is is ravaging to like the poor people who are desperate for a better break in life uh people who are unhealthy with huge hospital bills yeah and and particularly for the the poor and the marginalized because i mean who in you know the upper middle class is like oh man i just like really need to make sure that i'm donating to this ministry so i can be like wealthier stuff i mean like if you if you already kind of have your needs met you're not like desperate for you you know god to like come and provide for your physical needs so i mean the people that these like really overt hard prosperity gospel types appeal to are those who really do really are in need of their like physical and financial needs being met and so like it, it just it it really makes me angry like taking advantage of the poor and the downtrodden for your own financial gain, which is what the prosperity gospel does. Yes. And and in my perception, people like Copeland are the type most likely to be um, like to the poor, most likely gravitate to those types of people. Whereas the Joel Osteen types, actually, because Osteen doesn't talk that much about, about um, money, he tends to talk more about like happiness and success and, you know, 
uh, more like, I don't know, Osteen is a little more for career men and women, I think. Like, you read his book and, and you're a little inspired to, to do your day, you know. And so there, there's differences between them. But but those are kind of like the overt prosperity preachers. But then there's, I think, a soft prosperity gospel, which isn't necessarily just total heresy <laughs> um, in, the, in the Osteen and Copeland sense of the word. It's not another gospel. Yes, it's not like, you know, exchanging the grace of Jesus Christ for, you know, material blessing. Right. There is definitely some, uh, like, a softer version of this that doesn't quite, like, <laughs> head into the territory of, oh my goodness, like, I wouldn't want to be you on the judgment day kind of thing, um, but is just, like, kind of wishy-washy. And... In my opinion, this book, The Prayer of Jabez, kind of goes in this category. Wilkinson, like, stops short of kind of just, like, flat out saying that the purpose of Christianity is to make us happy or to or to get, you know, a lot of possessions. He stops far short of that. But the purpose of his book is, like, that we should really be concerned about, like, how much we have and how blessed we are by God um, in, in, a, in a material sense and in, like, a health sense. So... Again, I think we're going to kind of we're going to end this section and move into First Chronicles. But so if we talk about the prosperity gospel today, we're not talking Kenneth Copeland <laughs> um, and we're not accusing anybody of of like abandoning the Christian faith or anything. Uh, but I do think this is still incorrect teaching and may even be spiritually dangerous. And I think it's pretty sad that it was a bestseller when it's such a kind of a vapid, purposeless book uh, beyond the fact that it's an incorrect interpretation i'm a little disappointed more christians didn't see this for kind of the the throwaway theology that it was but <laughs> yeah so to kind of wrap it up you know we're 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 not saying that this book is heresy we're saying that this book kind of puts the focus in the wrong place and probably isn't like super helpful in your actual spiritual development very much so. <laughs> but what can we learn from these verses, John? I think we need to cut into our meat here. It's time for the meat. All right, so let's jump into the meat. You know, our, our standard approach is to look at the context of the verse and see how that helps us make sense of it. And these are just kind of two random verses in the middle of a genealogy. So like, <laughs> not a lot to help us here, huh? Yeah, the context doesn't doesn't help us all that much other than just like, I, I guess the, the context is really telling us that like, oh, this is like a, a, a character who is part of a particular lineage. And so the kind of the focus is not so much like, oh, let's like tell this big, long story about Jabez and really elicit how, you know, you know, Jabez is, you know, either, you know, like a like a type of, you know, he's like reflecting Jesus or, you know, that this is, you know, we can learn this spiritual truth from it, you know, or or anything like that necessarily, but rather that this is like one quick stopping point in kind of a long list of people. And the the list as a whole is kind of trying to tell a little bit of a story. And Jabez is kind of just like fit in here as kind of one small piece in a long list, essentially, if that, if that kind of makes sense. So, you know, it, it's interesting because, you know, so like I was saying, it's as this genealogy, Jabez, he really isn't mentioned anywhere else in scripture. Um, other than, I guess he is mentioned in First Chronicles 2.55, but 
Well, rather, it's that the name Jabez is mentioned in First Chronicles 2.55. But if you actually read the verse, it's like it's a little unclear if it's a name or a place, actually. And so it's possibly a place named after a person, which is common. <laughs> but uh, but it's <laughs> yeah, just yeah, it's totally. inconclusive. It, First Chronicles 2.55 doesn't help us at all. <laughs> with Jabez's prayer. Right. It's not like it's another story about Jabez or something. But this, you know, but but Jabez, he is in this genealogy, and specifically he is in this this genealogy is talking about the descendants of uh Judah. And so Judah, you know, he's one of the 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 sons of Jacob, and he is one of the uh like fathers of the twelve tribes of of Israel. So there is the tribe of Judah. And kind of the the big deal with Judah, if you remember kind of your Old Testament history, is Judah, it's, you know, it was one of the most prominent of the 12 tribes, and it's actually the one that ends up being the royal tribe. So like David is part of Judah, and uh, like his descendants, and and like Judah, that that's the, the southern kingdom that persists longer than the northern kingdom. And so Judah is the royal tribe. Also, this is uh, connected to the tribe that Jesus descends from as well. And so there's kind of some uh, uh, aspects of uh, Jesus as the Messiah coming through this as well. So Jabez is important in his association with Judah, and that's kind of the broad context here. But again, that's it, it's not like we're getting a lot of hard evidence that helps us make sense of what is this prayer that Jabez is praying and, you know, what does it mean? Um, again, other than it just is kind of like fitting into this... Um, like string of characters that's being introduced. So yeah, John, uh, I, we can only get so much from the genealogy itself. Of course, it's good to know where we're at in the context, but the thing is we actually can figure out a good number of details, at least kind of, uh, infer them. We, there's not a lot we can know for sure, but there's a lot that we can pick up and kind of do some guesswork around in these verses. So the first thing I want to observe is that the verse says that, uh, that Jabez's mother named him, not his father. So he likely grew up without a father. Uh, that's a pretty big giveaway. What that means, we don't know. Maybe his father was absent. He died during pregnancy. Whatever. We don't. We don't know. Just that his father was absent. Now this is because um, it, it was common for the father to name the son rather than the mother to name the son. That was that. That's kind of atypical of how things usually rolled back in the day. Sure, yeah, and continuing to the New Testament era, we see that with the naming of John the Baptist. <laughs> Sorry, not, yeah, John the Baptist is who it was, um, where his father was made mute by the angel, but they still wanted the father to be the one who named the son. So he asked for a tablet to write on, and he writes, his name's John. <laughs> they didn't consult Elizabeth, they consulted Zechariah. Well, it's because Elizabeth told them what the name was supposed to be, and they were like, no, 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 Elizabeth, <laughs> let's go ask your husband what he thinks. Right, and Zechariah was like super awesome and super, he's like, yep, John, she's right. <laughs> but that aside, <laughs> we're really getting off topic. Um, <laughs> so if you look at the ESV footnote, and, and this is also footnoted in other translations, it tells us that the name Jabez sounds like the Hebrew word for pain. And uh, here's a quick pro tip in general about Hebrew names in your Old Testament. Most of them have meanings. They are actually, they sound like a Hebrew word or or they, uh, I don't know, or they're just directly Hebrew words turned into a name. So for example, whenever you see L in a, in a name in the Old Testament, like E-L, those two letters, and as say in like Daniel, right? D-A-N-I-E-L. Well, L is the word for God in Hebrew. 
And another really common one is uh, is Yah, which you'll often see as I-A-H, as in Jeremiah. It can also be J-A-H. Um, but Yah is short for Yahweh, which is the divine name of the Lord that he revealed himself as to Moses. Um, so those kinds of things. It, always check your Hebrew footnotes, especially when you see in the text a comment like, then this person named their son this because, and then it will give a reason. Usually that that is actually indicating that the name sounds like it's kind of like a pun <laughs> on a Hebrew word. And that's exactly what we see in this verse. It it says, his mother called his name Jabez, saying, because I bore him in pain. So his name sounds like pain. And that's why, you know, that's why his mother chose that name, because she bore him in pain. So, <laughs> which isn't specified, again, <laughs> kind of like she he grew up without a father, but it doesn't tell us why. It doesn't tell us why she's in pain. Uh, so I don't know, it could be any number of things. The, the first thing you think of is, well, the father's absent. So maybe his absence is the pain, right? father's not there to help her raise this child maybe it was just a dangerous time or a especially painful pregnancy uh but i'm gonna kind of argue from the context i think the most likely circumstance here again entirely a guess but i think that there were invading attackers and other life circumstances that that made this birth devastating and it's even possible that that jabez's mother was raped and that Jabez even was the product of of that act, which is obviously horrifying. And we don't know that for sure. But just given the whole context and given that Jabez is about to pray for protection from from harm, there's obviously some sort of turmoil going on around this time of his conception and his birth. So, you know, and it's again, another possibility is that his father was just killed in a battle or something. Right. But it is. But it is interesting that, you know, his mother names this, she says, because I bore him in pain. And then, like you were saying, Jeremy, at the end of Jabez's prayer, he says, you know, keep me from harm so that it might not bring me pain. And so there seems to be kind of this this connection, like kind of this this turning around the word pain of there is this trouble or pain or hardship that his mother has endured surrounding this pregnancy and this birth. And then it's being connected with Jabez, like asking that a similar pain might not be rendered to him. And so in that sense, it's like, it, it seems to me that maybe this isn't quite like, oh, you know, his mom like had a lot of, you know, morning sickness or, you know, as uh, I've also heard it called not morning sickness, but just all day nausea. <laughs> you know, it's not just that necessarily his mother had like a hard pregnancy, but that there was some like other kind of life circumstance that like you were saying, Jeremy, that it was devastating because that would then make sense of this, like two uses of the word pain that Jabez is like part of what he is praying for is safety from a similar kind of devastation. And yeah. And I think along those lines, John, it becomes especially clear when we realize that the Hebrew word for harm is ra'ah, which is actually the same word that is translated as evil in a lot of places in the Old Testament. We don't really need to go on a large excursus about how difficult it can be to translate ra'ah um, in Hebrew. Let's just say that the English word does not directly correlate to the Hebrew language uh, when it comes to talking about this. There are passages where it talks about the Lord bringing about ra'ah. And you're like, what? The Lord can't bring about evil. Like, the Lord is not evil. He's perfect. He's, he's righteous, you know. But what it means is that the Lord is is bringing about 
circumstances that harm people, right? The Lord is sovereign over creation and there's a natural disaster. There are places in the Old Testament that speak of that as the Lord causing ra'ah. But the Hebrew authors do not mean that the Lord is causing evil, that the Lord is evil himself or anything of the sort. So in the same way here, like, this is also difficult, right? Keep me from ra'ah so that it might not bring me pain. Well, he could be saying, keep me from from just general kinds of harm, but it's also possible that he's saying, like, keep me from evil, keep me from people who will seek to do me harm instead of just random circumstances. So, again, that's not conclusive. Everything we're saying so far is like, well, this is a guess, right? Because um, it's only two verses that we have to go off of here. But uh, but to me, that indicates that that uh, Jabez is is you know seeking to not have the pain, as you said, John the pain that was kind of inflicted on his mother during the time of her conception and birth, he's seeking for that to be avoided by himself. And the reason why I'm so persuaded that invaders and attackers is in view here is because his prayer is for a larger border. This is not um, something that maybe we understand as well in this day and age, but in that day and age, asking for a larger border could only mean, especially when he's talking about pain and harm, he he wants a sufficient like control over enough territory to ward off attackers. He wants a fortified kind of territory for himself. Yeah, like liter like literally a land buffer between him and the next group of people. Exactly. Yes. Like resources are security. We're going to talk about that a little more later. Um and there are plenty of ways in which that's true today. Um but but not in the sense of like if you have a lot of acres you're necessarily a lot safer, you know, <laughs> um in 2020. But uh but so yeah, I think Given that his prayer specifically concerns defense, I think that leads us to think that this, you know, this pain is is about being attacked by by someone else. And uh, again, that would sort of support either the hypothesis that Jabez's father was murdered or that, you know, Jabez maybe didn't even ever have <laughs> a father other than a rapist. So obviously horrifying circumstances that we're dealing with here and probably that doesn't get mentioned in Bruce Wilkinson's book. Likely not. <laughs> like just how dire these circumstances probably were. The other thing to notice here is something that we've kind of hinted at a little bit before is that in the verse, you know, it says that Jabez was, you know, more honorable than his brothers and he called upon the God of Israel. And again, I think the the, the thing to really highlight here is this idea that he's more honorable than his brothers. He's like being put in direct comparison with some other people. Uh, and specifically what's being highlighted about Jabez, like kind of the thing that we're told about him that like he's actually done is that he's more honorable. He's pious, that he is depending upon God. And, you know, we see that in the fact that he is calling upon the God of Israel. And ostensibly this is in, you know, contradistinction to the actions of his brothers who, you know, he's more honorable than them. He calls upon the God of Israel, but, you know, perhaps his brothers don't do the thing of calling upon the God of Israel. And so there is the sense in which, like, Jabez is not only, like, faithful to God, but that he is also relying upon God in a way that was you know, atypical of just kind of your standard Israelite. I think that's kind of the, the the comparison that's being made here. Again, a little bit of guesswork, and we're reading between the lines a little bit, but I, I think that's what the author's trying to communicate here. Now, it's it's interesting that, like, what Jabez asks for. Now, you know, we've already said that, like, one of the things that he asks for is, you know, that his border, you know, would be, you know, expanded. But the other thing that he asks for is that, you know, your, that your, that is the God of Israel's 
hand might be with me. Now, this is, again, kind of eliciting this theme that, that Jabez is depending upon God. He's depending upon God's sovereignty for his, like, own defense and protection. Now, we see that that it's, you know, Jabez isn't saying, like, you know, hey, God, make me, like, super powerful that, you know, I can strike down my enemies or, you know, something like that. But that he's asking that, like, your hand might be with me. So it's this dependence on God's strength is is really where the the, the emphasis is being put here. Now, the reason why we're saying and I got to jump in. I got to jump in, John, with uh, <laughs> with another Hebrew little little um, factoid here. This word hand. <laughs> yeah, this word hand, uh, Hebrew, yad, is not, <laughs> it doesn't just mean your hand. It, it actually means your, your whole arm. And it's translated differently. There are some translations where you'll see the hand of the Lord translated as the arm of the Lord. Um, it's Again, it's a weird word because there's not exactly a English exact one-to-one <laughs> thing. But so it doesn't just mean the hand, it means the whole arm. And this word yod is frequently used to talk about God when it comes to military and and like defense kind of contexts. So for example, well actually oh. can I jump in for a second? So it's that like yod is a biological reference, like it's an anatomy reference and it means like everything past your shoulder. Yes, there's debate over whether it is just the forearm or it includes like your, you know, your biceps and and all of that. Uh you know, I actually I'm not sure how much debate there is on that. It might be just more or less agreed upon. Um but one way or another, it's not literally just your hand. It's it's more of your hand. And what it means metaphorically is your strength. Like your power, your might, your, you know, what you're capable of doing is in your yod. Okay, okay. So is this, is this also connected to the idea of like Jesus's hands being pierced, but like, you know, probably it actually, you know, you know like it, the, the nails actually likely went through his lower wrist, like between, you know, his radius and his ulna, like on the cross. Is that, is that the same that is a fantastic question. <laughs> I don't know off the top of my head. And Greek is different with the way it handles these body parts. Oh, you're right. Okay, uh, okay. But but I, I, you're, I think you might be onto something. It's something to research. Uh, For sure. See all of the prep that we w- put into this episode beforehand, folks. Sure. Well, yeah. And I mean, the New Testament might be like quoting the Old Testament there. And then you get into issues of the Septuagint. And... Whoa, what's the Septuagint, Jeremy? Ooh, okay, oh, okay, we don't have time to get into this. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but the point, let me get you back on track, Jeremy. Yeah. The point here is that the hand is used metaphorically to refer to somebody's strength or power or like ability to accomplish a thing, usually in the context of like conquest or like might or power or something. Sure. Like if you look at Exodus 7 verses 4 and 5. Um, we're talking about the Exodus here, you know, fancy that from the book of Exodus. And, <laughs> well, I mean, there's more in that book than just the Exodus, but this is the section that is about the Exodus. And God says, I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, hosts is a military term, bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt. Okay, so so God is saying, I'm going to use my divine might to deliver my people from the Egyptians. That's what that means. It doesn't mean that God has a biological hand at all. 
it literally is just saying, well, <laughs> it is metaphorically just saying, not literally just saying, it is metaphorically just saying that, that God is going to use his entire strength to perform this. And of course, yod is just a normal term for hand. So most of the time it's used, it's not, it just means somebody's hand or arm. <laughs> but whenever it's used in a metaphorical sense of God, it is talking about this. It's talking about power and might. All right, so we've sort of diced, <laughs> sliced and diced all the different parts of these two verses. There's not that much, and most of what we've said is sort of speculative. Um, what we just figured out, of course, with this strength, this hand metaphor, is that Jabez wants fortification for his own security, but he hasn't forgotten that all the land in the world won't protect him if the Lord's strength isn't on his side. And so that's, you know, kind of one more strike against this sort of idea that um, that this prayer of Jabez is, is about, you know, getting a lot more resources or property solely instead of about defense or about, uh, you know, being kept from, from severe pain. But that being said, so we kind of talked about the verses. I, I want to discuss a few different topics with you, John, that uh, are sort of related to this. And <laughs> so we're going to go beyond these two verses and talk about some kind of meta- theology and and biblical studies stuff. And then we're going to talk about some practical things. Yeah, no, that sounds great. So what's what do you have for me? Sure. So first I want to talk about land and what it indicates, what it means to say someone in Jabez's circumstances versus someone in our circumstances. And I'm curious what you think about this this idea of land as a blessing from God. Yeah, yeah. So when when you say that kind of the the thing that immediately pops into my head is that um Land is something that's like super important in the Old Testament, particularly because land was something that God specifically promised to the people of Israel after he brought them out of Egypt. So again, to kind of remember your history here, the people of Egypt or, you know, the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt. God delivers them, you know, with, uh, you know, if you've seen the Prince of Egypt, you know, all of the great miracles and, <laughs> you know, stuff like that you know, across the Red Sea. And and then, you know, God makes this covenant with the people of Israel. And one of the things that he promises to them is he says like, hey, you know, I'll be your God, you'll be my people. And I'm going to give you a bunch of land in what is now like modern day Palestine, uh, you know, this big chunk of land uh, that, that I'm going to like give to you and you're going to like go and live there and it's going to be your land. And so, and and this is like really like a big deal in a center point of, a lot of the last half of Exodus and like Numbers and Deuteronomy and Leviticus, kind of the idea of the land that the people are about to inherit is kind of a theme that runs through a lot of those books. Yeah, well, okay, so so that's the Old Testament, right? Then it would sound to me that that Jabez's prayer kind of directly agrees with this, this sort of promise for land. And Jabez, of course, was like fairly early, fairly early on in the genealogy. So so this was not like uh, during the kingdom of Israel. This was, you know, earlier. And so I think it's especially fitting to his context, right? This was, during, I think, I believe this would probably have been during the time of the, the Canaanite conquest, right? Like very likely Canaanites were even the people Jabez was attacked by. So it seems especially fitting given that context, that he would want land. And he was justified in asking God for it because God had, like, already promised it. Yeah, he was, like, praying God's promises back to God, which, you know, how could that be a bad prayer? <laughs> yeah, like God said, I'm going to give you a chunk of land. And Jabez was like, hey, God, can you give me that chunk of land that you said you were going to give? <laughs> 
It's a pretty good prayer. I mean, I, if I were God, I don't know how I'd say no to that. Right? <laughs> <laughs> God's like, well, I guess if you insist. <laughs> don't be so pushy about it, Jabez. <laughs> okay, so, <laughs> so that aside, like, you know, okay, so I think it's obvious that today large land holdings doesn't really indicate safety in the same sense. Like, I guess it depends on where in the world you are. I don't know about for everybody, but if somebody has a large parcel of land, I don't assume they're necessarily like more protected from disease or, or anything or cyber attack. <laughs> right. I, my assumption is just that they have a lot of money and they have uh, uh, the ability to enjoy wealth that in a way most people don't. So, yeah, I, I don't know. For me, it seems like whether or not having more resources makes you safer or not is super dependent on context. <laughs> I can, I mean, like I can envision circumstances where having a lot of money makes you a greater target. You know, and so, and in an era with powerful weaponry, like guns, right? I mean, if someone really wants to kill another person or rob them. I mean, it's not that hard to do it. I'm, I don't have experience in that area, but I'm just, I'm just saying that it seems like it, it would be easier to do so now if you really wanted to target somebody. So, you know, having more resources would make you a bigger target. But that being said... You know, if you're able to live in a nice neighborhood as opposed to the dangerous part of town, well, okay, that's obviously going to make you safer from from crime. So I, I don't know. I, we're sort of talking talking a lot of different practical matters here, but I think the point is it doesn't mean the same as it used to to have a lot of land. So, but I think one thing that I would want to point out is that while land might not mean what it used to mean, I do think people would agree that having money, like just access to resources does provide security up to a certain point. And I would actually point out a specific proverb here. Chapter 10, verse 15 says, a rich man's wealth is his strong city. The poverty of the poor is their ruin. And, and to, to my mind, things like money for legal representation, that, that comes to mind, right? Like being able to defend yourself against you know, whether the accusation against you is true or false, like you need a good lawyer. And that's absurdly expensive. And I, I know people whose lives have been really turned upside down by legal expenses. So having money and savings is really going to protect you there. Could save you jail time, right? Uh, good health care. Obviously, health care is a huge issue right now. People, it's very expensive, you know, health insurance, paying out of pocket. Also, you know, obviously, <laughs> usually more expensive. Uh Having savings is a really good thing for that. And lastly, this is, you know, a little bit less probably of an issue in most people's lives, but having the resources to purchase weapons to use in defense for yourself, you know, guns cost money, <laughs> ammo costs money, right? And so if you want something to defend yourself, if you, you know, don't trust the the police, which, you know, there's going to be a delay between your calling of 911 and the arrival of experts to your house to protect you. It's not a bad idea to have self-defense options in your home. And so that's another way that having resources is going to help protect you. So I don't, yeah, the land thing, I think it would be a good idea to put that a little bit aside when we're understanding Jabez's prayer and think in terms of Proverbs 10, 15. Having more resources, Proverbs say, just as a general rule, is going to make you more secure. And that's a good thing. Like, it's not a bad thing. This proverb isn't saying <laughs> that we want to be ruined like the poor, uh, but rather, we. I mean, it's it's good to have fortifications up, you know. So, I don't know. That's, that's what I think about this. Do you have anything to add, John? No, no. But I, I would definitely agree with you that I think that if we are trying to make application of this to our present day, 
we definitely should distance it from like actual literal land and you know come come to the understanding that like yeah this this prayer is i I think really when we read it in its context talking about like physical safety in 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 some respect and so the you know when, when we make application to that it would be the the thing that we need to be granted to us to provide for that physical safety isn't necessarily land but like you're saying access to resources so i mean mostly i would just kind of agree with what you were saying Cool. Well, okay. Let's move on to a second topic of discussion, and it's super related. It's a different, but it's it's related to what we were just saying, and that is a kind of my idea that that one man's answer to prayer from God is another man's curse from God. <laughs> we we touched on this earlier that like just because God answered this one prayer doesn't mean it would be good for Him to answer this prayer for other people, especially when you know Bruce Wilkinson wrote he always answers this prayer, which kind of raises some red flags. Uh, so what do you think about like, you know, is this prayer something that God always answers? Is this always a good idea for God to answer this kind of prayer? What do you think? No, no, certainly not. Like I, I think of the like common story that you hear of like people winning the lottery and then it like absolutely ruining their life. Like their all of their relationships fall apart, uh, you know, and they, you know, end up spending all of the money very quickly and they're kind of in the same situation that they were in before, except now they've like suffered great, uh, like emotional losses as, as a result of it. And like, like, I think that's kind of connected here that material blessing, you know, well, we call it material blessing, but that, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's actually going to be a blessing for you. The, the way, the way that I like to talk about it is, you know, when you own things, there's a sense in which the thing also owns you back um, that like having lots of things and having lots of resources and having lots of money is a massive responsibility. Like being rich is not something that's like easy because you have to like steward all of that money and like make sure that it's invested well and like keeping up with uh, uh, like all of the, 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 the various demands that like having things is like people know this if you if you have a car like it's a wonderful thing to have a car usually you know but cars also you know you need to buy gas for them you need to maintain them uh you know you need to pay for repairs and and you know things like that and so there's a lot of work that's associated with owning a car and like i would say that most things are like that where you don't just like get this thing and have it just be like pure unadulterated benefit rendered to your life you know, there's going to be some responsibility or work that's associated with it. And I mean, frankly, not everybody is equipped to handle all of the responsibility of being fabulously rich or to have a ton of like resources necessarily. And so in that respect, it's like having all of those things suddenly dumped upon a person wouldn't necessarily be a good thing because they wouldn't be prepared to handle them. Yeah, I really like that, John. That that really resonates with me. And I think especially it matters when we're talking about being able to spiritually handle that amount of that amount of wealth, right? Like because Jesus says only, you know, it, it is impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, you know, except with God, right? With God all things are possible. And that's his his, you know, idea. And uh there there does seem to be a difference in scripture between like having riches and being quote unquote a rich man, <laughs> if you get what I'm saying. Like there, there's the kind of attitude that is rich in in, in material blessings and in, in treasures on this earth, but is not rich toward God. Uh, there's actually a whole passage about that. Um, 
and uh, I think we'll get to it a little bit later. Uh, but uh, but yeah, so like the the idea of being able to handle all that wealth in such a way of being able to put it aside spiritually and still depend on God, despite having a lot, <laughs> is a big responsibility. And God knows us as his children well, and he knows which of us would be destroyed by that responsibility, which of us would not handle that, right? And so those of us whom he's called and whom he's given the spirit to is not going to give us more than we can handle. And like, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. God will not let, not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And that that is true generally, and it's true of us as individuals. So Jabez, God is like, hey, Jabez is an honorable dude. He suffered a lot in his life. His mother suffered a lot. I love Jabez. I love his family. His lineage means a lot to me. And I'm going to bless him with land so that he can not worry <laughs> about, about his uh his need to, to, to be defended and to, and to be kept from harm. And that obviously makes a lot of sense. And also connected with that is that, you know, Jabez has already demonstrated that he relies and depends upon God and acknowledges that his provision is something that God has given to him. And, you know, like you were saying before, there's, you know, there's no amount of land that I can have that will keep me safe if, the hand, if you know God's hand is not with me, and so there's already the sense in which Jabez is in this posture of recognizing that all things come from God, and that without you know that that he's he's relying upon God for all of his provision, and so in that sense, it's like you get the idea that like if Jabez was given a lot of resources or a lot of land, it wouldn't be you know he he wouldn't become complacent in in that place, but that he would. You know, he's like already prepared to uh, uh, like steward those resources well, because, you know, with I guess what I'm trying to say is this of like, you know, you know, to, to him who's faithful with little, you know, much will be given. Um, and I, I think that's kind of the idea that we're seeing here with Jabez that like, you know, with little he was faithful that he was depending on God and, you know, and God gives him much. Yeah. And I think it, I you know, even something like security, which is a basic need, right, a basic food, clothing, right? These kinds of things. God does sometimes withhold those from his children in his sovereign purposes. Like Paul was talks about frequently being hungry and frequently being in, in what would appear to be immense danger. So Paul certainly had a lot of times when he felt not safe, um, and but that was God's will. I would say generally it is God's will that his children have these basics. I mean, Matthew 6, 33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus is talking about food and clothing, literally, in that passage, right? Those are the all these things. Um, there's another limited use of the word all <laughs> from, from last week's or last uh, last episode, not last week's episode, but two weeks ago. Literally every single thing in the universe will be added to you. <laughs> Right. But the point, obviously, Jesus's point being that, like, we should expect basic blessings from God, even if they don't come, though, we, we need to depend on on him and trust that he has good purposes. But in this case, of course, he's answering a prayer for basic safety that Jabez is offering. And and I think the key, we're, we're, the thing we're kind of circling around here is that, again, prayer is not mantric. It's, it's not like you say it and it just comes to pass regardless of the circumstances and God's knowledge of those circumstances, right? God is going to answer a prayer, yes or no, based on his sovereign purposes, which are, you know, exhaustive, knowing all of history and all, you know, possibilities in the future. And, and God is going to make a decision about our prayers 
based on that. And we have to submit to those decisions. I just don't like it when people treat God like some sort of cosmic pinata. Right? Like if you hit the right spot with your bat, then all the candy comes out. That's just not God. And it's not the way he's ever presented in scripture. And Jesus specifically teaches us not to pray that way in Matthew 6, 7. Again, lots of stuff from the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Uh, so I just want to avoid that, I think. And that's definitely what I what I get from, from the prayer of Jabez's book. All right, John, I got a third question for you. This is sort of changing gears a little bit from theology about prayer to just, I don't know, like reading scripture and preaching scripture. And it's my concern that sometimes just this, we, we have this tendency to read too much into scripture in order to make it quote unquote preach good, right? I mean, scripture should theoretically preach good, right? We don't need to add any add any flair to scripture to make it better. But I think some people want to- Yeah, do we, we don't got to help God's words yeah. out. So what do, you, what do you think about that? Just like kind of- Again, we've mentioned several times just how little we have to go off of. We, we've speculated about Jabez's circumstances, but it's it's really just a guess. And so, I don't know. What about reading too much into scripture? What do you think about that, John? Yeah, totally. And I mean, you know, that's a bit of a softball that you just like pitched to me right there. <laughs> yes, Jeremy, I think that it's great to kind of like utilize scripture and, you know, to make your own point with it. I'm like, no, no, of course not. I mean, that's like literally what eisegesis is. You know, I, th I think there is this, th there, there really is a tendency to, like you were saying, kind of like make, kind of like help scripture out a little bit to, you know, kind of like grease the wheels and, and you know, make things, you know, ring a little easier in in people's ears in the present day and you know i think a lot of that has to do with the fact that you know the bible most of it was written you know 2000 plus years ago depending on which book you're reading and you, you know so that like every time you're cracking open the bible you're you're having a cross-cultural experience um you know you're reading a document that, like it wasn't written by you know an american living in the 21st century or you know for our listeners who are you know overseas or, or perhaps up north in in canada uh you know it's it's not like this was a 21st century person who was writing these documents and so there is going to be kind of some you know maybe weird stuff where it's like ah oh, like i don't really understand why this is written this way or I'm not sure this makes sense or, you know, like if I had written this, I would have given more details in this place or, you know, why did they even bring up Jabez or, you, you know, like all of these kinds of questions. But, you know, it's like scripture is what it is. And like, I, I think we get off on the wrong foot when we try to massage it too much to make sense to present day audiences. And so, you know, I guess I like I hope that our audience hears that we are, you know, speculating a lot with this passage with Jabez, but that we're also trying to ground pretty deeply the, the things that we're saying in other scriptures that are clearer. Um, you know, so we're, we're relying pretty heavily on the Sermon on the Mount to like, you know, make sense of this. We've mentioned a few Proverbs already. And so I guess what I would say is that, you know, if you are, if you are taking a scripture verse and, you know, kind of finding yourself like you're really needing to kind of explain away the hard edges and the thing that you're explaining away isn't, you know, necessarily found elsewhere in scripture or it's not like an idea that, you know, gets talked about in other places or or really discussed a lot other places. And I'd, I'd probably be start being a little 
self-suspicious of my own thoughts if I if I found myself doing that kind of thing. And in fact, you know, I shouldn't speak hypothetically. I find myself doing that all the time of, you know, trying to to smooth scriptures over and and I need to and I need to check myself in that and say that like no, like scripture is what it is and we have to take it at face value. Yeah, I think the reason why it's good to do the that kind of speculation um, is that it helps us like figure out sort of the boundaries of what is an acceptable interpretation, you know, especially when you have such little info to go off of. So I think the, the, the value of having that discussion is it keeps us from like obviously incorrect ways of understanding it, you know. But I think we need to be comfortable with having to do some speculation to figure out where those boundaries are, because God himself, like the, the Bible says there are things that are not revealed to us, you know, and that's in Deuteronomy 29 verse 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. So we need to focus most on those things scripture does teach. That's just kind of my, my spiel about, about uh, reading things that aren't there. And I think one way that this happens is, is when people focus on the emotional meaning of the words of scripture in English, kind of like the connotations of words rather than their, you know, what they meant in the original context. And so, and, and that kind of goes with what we were talking about with land. It has a, just a different emotional reaction to us today. To hear about enlarging our border sounds like, cool, I bought a sweet house. It doesn't sound like, oh, I'm protected from enemies and invaders. And so even though there's no difference, like, in terms of the dictionary definition of these words between our context and Jabez's, they, there's obviously a different response we have. And then sometimes preachers will kind of take that really far and, and make a lot out of one point, right? This idea of enlarging our border. And, and, and I think just really start bringing in, you'll often hear people bringing in kind of stories uh, about their life, which is a really good thing to do when you're preaching to kind of tie the context, original context to our day. But I think sometimes they're abused to sort of get people to stop thinking about the original verses and just start thinking about a given phrase, like enlarge my border. <laughs> yes. And this is exactly the issue with exegesis versus eisegesis that we were talking about before. The whole problem here with the emotional connotation in English is you are bringing to this phrase your own connotations in the present day rather than pulling out from the text in its own context what the phrase would have meant to the original audience. Or, of course, narcissus, which would be reading ourselves <laughs> into the prayer of Jabez, right? And thinking that having more land is a good thing for us necessarily, just because God answered this one prayer. It's really going outside the point of what's being said, for sure. I think some other things, just, I don't know, that, that uh, I hear people do that change the, <laughs> the meaning of the text when they're, they're reading too much into it is, is like trying to insert Jesus or the gospel into just any passage, especially from the Old Testament, like trying to find some way to shoehorn a gospel message in where maybe they're, you know, the passage is just in Proverbs or something, you know, and it's about living wisely. And maybe there's not much to be said about justification by faith alone. You know, <laughs> that's another thing that I think uh, that I see. Um, of course, pet issues and topics. Sometimes you can tell a preacher has been dealing with something or reading books about a certain topic because they're like kind of shoehorning a topic into a text that has nothing to do with it. And then lastly, I don't know, making texts spiritual or metaphorical in ways that they're not actually. And I think this is a huge issue with this interpretation, this misinterpretation of Jabez's prayer. 
is turning like enlarge my border into some like metaphor for any kind of like spiritual growth, right? And the book is big on that. Just like we pray, right? And like, oh, enlarge my border. And that means anything that the author wants it to mean. <laughs> um, it, of course, it means possessions that aren't just land, but, but you know, the author extends it to, to things like our spiritual growth. That's just not what the passage is about. I mean, it preaches good because it sounds all spirit-filled and it sounds all like, woo, we're really big into prayer here and all that stuff. But it just doesn't have anything to do with that. <laughs> Jabez is already an honorable man when he prays the prayer, and he's just asking for protection by getting more property. That's that's his prayer. That's what it's about. Yeah, this is another classic example of. Uh, I think we talked about this in our in 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 episode one, wasn't it? Where where we were talking about the uh, you know where there is no vision. You know, it's this idea. I think of like, that was the third episode, actually. Oh, okay, yeah. sure, sure. It, episode three. Um, you know, where, you know, where there is no vision of this, this idea that like, well, okay, I mean, or it's it's not necessarily bad to like have goals or, or plans for your life. And the same thing, it's like, like, no, of course you should be praying that like God would, you know, grow your spiritual life and develop you. That's just not what this verse is talking about. Absolutely. Yes. And amen. Well, okay. So we've had these kind of discussions talking about the issues with this book, but I think before we go into application, I think we should talk about just riches and possessions in general. What is a biblical teaching about them and how can we sort of synthesize the last episode and this episode um, to refine our approach to money? And as we've covered, money is not inherently evil. It's not bad to have it. It's amoral, right? It's not moral. It's not immoral. We can either worship God and be righteous with it, or we can be wicked with our money. And so that being said, um, you know, what are, what are wise ways to use money? This, I think this is a good, and this will kind of flow into application as well. Um, cause I mean, it's hard to talk about Proverbs, which we're going to do a lot of Proverbs in this section, um, and not be practical. But, uh, one passage that comes to my mind is, um, Luke chapter 12 verses 13 to 21. It's a really good little tale that Jesus tells. So I think it's, um, I think it's worth quoting at length here. Here's, uh, here's uh, from the Gospel of Luke. Someone in the crowd said to him, that's Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, so the whole crowd, not just that man, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So in this passage, I see that uh, that Jesus's criticism of the man is is targeted at his heart and his response to his circumstances. You know, the man's land produces plentifully, but that's not a, a manner of, of criticism. Um, instead, this man persuades himself. He's speaking to his own soul. He's like, relax. You can chill out now. Stop being diligent, right? Just consume with reckless abandon this productivity that the Lord has given to you. 
And then Jesus, <laughs> Jesus says that God will say to that man that he is a fool, right? This night, your soul is required of you. The very soul that the man is talking to and trying to persuade to, to not be generous and to not be diligent. And so Jesus says, this, <laughs> this guy is laying up treasure for himself, but he's not rich toward God. And so the criticism is aimed both at the storing up of treasures on heaven, or storing up, sorry, storing up of treasures on earth instead of in heaven, which Jesus already criticizes in the Sermon on the Mount. But he's also just criticizing that you're not rich toward God. You have these riches, okay, whatever, your land produced plentifully, cool, but you're not rich toward God. And so that's the, the crux of Jesus's criticism. So, so no matter what we do with money, what matters is, are we rich toward God? doesn't matter if we're rich or poor with our money. It matters if we're rich or poor towards God. So my admonition, I guess, would be let's be like Jabez, <laughs> not with his prayer necessarily, but in using God's blessings for good and praying for them with right motives. Totally, Jeremy. Well, here, let me read a few Proverbs that also kind of keep eliciting these ideas. So Proverbs chapter 13, verse 11. Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Yeah, that's a good one, right? Like uh, lottery, get-rich-quick schemes are not biblical, right? So um, like use diligence and work, right? Actually produce things for your community. Like you shouldn't be, that's, that's in general. If someone is rich because they have leached off of other people, then that is an unrighteous way to be rich, but rather to be diligent and productive in doing things that are valued by your culture, that's actually how you should be gaining money. And it's, there's nothing wrong with, with doing that that way. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 15. Whoever puts up security for a stranger will surely suffer harm, but he who hates striking hands in pledge is secure. So security for a stranger, this, this verse is talking about guaranteeing someone else's loan, right? Making, and in general, I think it's, it's kind of talking about making agreements with your money that you don't know that you can follow through with or that which could potentially ruin you, right? If you're guaranteeing a loan for someone you don't even know very well, that's an unwise decision. So here it's encouraging not to be overly generous, not to be, to show your cards too much, I guess, and make agreements that you're not aware enough uh, to, to really commit to with your neighbor. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 7. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is the slave of the lender. So here you get this really interesting contrast of, you know, who is the one who's in charge and who is the one who's serving. Uh, you know, here it's like, you know, the rich rules over the poor, but the borrower's the slave of the lender. And it's kind of setting up this idea of like, Hey, I mean, like, you know, you, you, you don't want to be on the serving end of, you know, these things like ostensibly you want to be the one who's ruling. It's, you know, it's interesting that the proverb is kind of setting that up as something to be desired and sought after, you know, to be kind of like in charge and influential uh, in that sense. And so and, and it's doing that by saying like, hey, I mean, like if you're if you're borrowing money from people like they they have a stake in you like that you have agreed to put yourself under their authority in a sense here that like, you know, they, they, they own a piece of you because you, you've taken their money. And so it's yeah basically saying like, ah, dude, guys, it's like, it's not a good idea just to be borrowing willy nilly. I mean, 
you know, of course, if it's like an absolute necessity, I mean, you know, there's that. But I mean, basically, it's like it is kind of this like debt slavery that you've put yourself under. Yeah, the Bible doesn't say it's a sin to be a slave, but presumably it's not a circumstance you would want yourself to be in if you can help it. And I think that would be like the application here, right? If the borrower is the slave of the lender, well, you better have a good reason to to be a lender. <laughs> or to be to be a borrower. Sorry, you better have a good reason to be the borrower in that circumstance, which there there are good reasons. I mean, it's hard to ever have a house if you don't get a mortgage. Um, but, you know, geez, like people put the weirdest things on credit cards, man. Well, here's another one. Uh, Proverbs 24, 27. I really like this one. It says, prepare your work outside, get everything ready for yourself in the field. And after that, build your house. And I think this is kind of saying two different things. One is that uh, you should take care of basic needs first, right? For yourself and your dependents, right? Food, clothing, shelter, uh, right? Before you, before you go on, before you go on proceeding to other like kind of second order goods. Um, so, right. But then also I think this verse is saying you should protect your sources of income. Uh, like <laughs> you want to focus first on your work focus first on what you're doing to, to get the basic food on the table um, and, and really prioritize that before you, you manage other affairs that might be super important, right? And build your house, of course, doesn't just mean the physical building of your house, but it can also, it can also refer to like the, the managing of one's household. Um, I mean, I won't go on to, to prove why I think so, uh, <laughs> but, but I, I do believe that that's part of like the idea of building one's house. So uh, yeah, I think that's a great proverb as well. Proverbs eleven twenty five: Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and the one who waters will himself be watered. Now, you know, I, I don't think this is like a prosperity verse of like, you know, giving you the key of like, ah, if you send in your seed offering to my ministry, then God will bless you in the future. It, like, that, that's not what this proverb is, proverb is saying. I think it's this recognition of like, I mean, hey, if you're like rendering goods to your community, if you're bringing blessing, if you are like watering the field, that then there is kind of this like natural blessing that comes back to you in in that as well. That like if you bring blessing to your community, then it's going to be enriching to you. Now, uh, I I think that there's also two senses of the enriching here that, you know, part of it might be a like actual material enriching. But I think there's also an enriching in this like participating and giving to your community that is in and of itself an enrichment. Certainly, yeah. And Proverbs aren't always telling us like, you know, what's always the right thing to do. So it's not necessarily right to give money to other people for the sole like motive of receiving, right? And like, that's not the reason to give, but it is an observation that Proverbs is making that like, you know, it generally goes well if you're not, if you're not, you know, a jerk to your community. And if you actually care for the needy, um, and serve your neighbor. Like that's, that's literally what like the economy is based on. The reason your employer pays you is because you render a service to them that, that they regard as valuable, that you've actually done something to your employer that is more beneficial to them than that money would have been if they had kept it. So by definition, as long as you're not exploiting people, right? As long as a corporation is not, you know, uh, petitioning the government for special privileges. And, and there's lots of ways you can rig the system in, in your favor. But just in the basic sense, like exchanging goods and services with one another on a voluntary basis is doing good in your community. Working a job is doing good in your community. 
like so so yeah all this is connected diligence is is part of watering <laughs> and bringing blessing to your community and then i i got one last one here john uh Proverbs 3.27 says, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. And what I think is interesting about this one, we've talked about generosity in these last two episodes already. Uh, so not to reiterate our point, but uh, those to whom it is due, I think, excludes giving to the wasteful and the lazy, uh, which I think is not actually loving that neighbor, but is instead enabling them uh, and in Proverbs 16, 26, it indicates that a worker's appetite works for him. His mouth urges him on. And then in the New Testament, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, that if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Um, so uh, he says, we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So there is this idea, and it sounds harsh, it, it, it is not um, maybe the most pleasant thing to talk about, but there's definitely an idea in scripture that there is a sort of generosity that is enabling and not helping your neighbor. Um, and so consider when, when giving, to, um, giving to the needy, right, uh, on top of all the other considerations, you know, consider whether the, the resources you're giving are going to a source that is likely to benefit the most from them and, instead of enabling. And, uh, and I think a, a good like application of that could be partnering with local, uh, you know, ministries. If, if you want to give food to the poor, um, you know, rather than necessarily giving to strangers, you, you don't know when you come across on the street, that's kind of my opinion. Uh, some would disagree, but <laughs> the point being, whatever we do when we're generous, we, we should be aware of that, that there is a way to enable people with our giving. So give wisely. It's time for the other meat. Well, hey, so we've been talking a lot about applications already in the context context of Proverbs, but let's get into our, you know, usual, like, several-point application here. We'll probably go a little quickly because, you know, we've already given a lot of tidbits for, you know, ways you can be bringing us home. So, Jeremy, hook us up. What's our number one uh, application point here? Yeah, we should pray for God's provision even when our finances are strong. And I think that's to cultivate an attitude of dependence and submission. As Jesus says in his Lord's Prayer, right? Give us today our daily bread. So I think regardless of what our possessions are, poor or rich, pray for God's provision and pray so not from selfish motives, but just say, God, give me what I need. Give me what you know I need. Yeah. Point number two we have is, you know, we should be praying for a spirit of wisdom in the use of our extra resources that God gives us. You know, it, these are things that like, you know, they aren't necessarily like needs. We should be working to avoid the build bigger barns and bigger houses idea of, you know, Jesus, that Jesus was condemning in that passage in Luke that we talk, talked about, but that we should be really like asking God, like, you know, Lord, you know, in this, you know, excess, this, this blessing that you've given to us, like, how can we actually be faithful with these things that you have given to us? Totally. And uh, third point of application here, work hard. Save money for the day of trouble, right? Have a rainy day fund. <laughs> um, diligence and productivity are Christian virtues. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Don't let anyone tell you that being meek, um, you know, as it says in, in the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, means to just like be passive about life, to not 
you know, actively do things like it's it's right. It is a virtue to be active in your community by providing value to an employer or by starting a business yourself. Right. Or working hard in your home to raise children, whatever it is that you do, uh, work hard at that. You are doing valuable things for your community every day if you work hard at that. And that's a legitimate sign of God's blessing, provided your heart is in the right place about it. Um, if you happen to make a lot of money, if you happen to be diligent and productive and you succeed so much at those virtues, you're going to tend to have more resources because of that. So don't assume you've done anything wrong to gain that money, but just evaluate your heart and then be wise enough with your money to be able to generously give a lot of it away. And application point number four is we should be like Jabez. We look at uh, the few points that we do hear about Jabez and like he didn't have an easy life. There were hard things that happened to him. And, you know, we don't know the details of what exactly those challenging things were. But the things that we do know that we're told is that he was honorable. He was more honorable than his brothers. He stood out as one who was pious and holy. And, you know, so we should be seeking to emulate Jabez in in that respect. And like what I what I really see in the prayer that Jabez prays is that he is someone who knows God. He knows God's character and he is asking God for the things that God's already promised to him. That's, you know, in the context of the expanding my borders and, you know, the, the like God's already promised him land. And so he's asking for God to fulfill those promises to him. And so I would say that we can be similarly seeking to grow our relationship with the Holy Spirit, who is our comforter, to comfort us in times of, you know, when we have deep pain or deep trouble or deep need, that if we have a close relationship with the Spirit, that we do, we will then know God's character and God's heart, and that will inform our prayers. Amen. Yeah, he is our comforter. And uh, it's so important to be comforted by the Spirit. We might not have levels of pain of, of Jabez and his mother, but uh, we, we all suffer some things, right? Even if it's just emotional um, grief, right? So, so, so draw near to the Spirit, for sure. And then I think the last application point for today, we've been um, beating a thrice dead horse <laughs> already with the, the prayer of Jabez, right? That is, that is, uh, that book by Bruce Wilkinson is dead and beaten already. <laughs> so I think it'd be, it'd be, um, ill-fitting if we didn't have an application point to say like, you know, it's really a good idea to avoid most popular Christian literature. Like if it's sold really well, it's probably is not very good. I hate to say that. Um, but it's just true. I can't think of any like really top selling books just in the last like 30 years even that I'm aware of that are like good, that are even like, okay. <laughs> so that being said, I mean, there's definitely good selling books that are worth reading, but the top selling ones that are just flying off the stores at Christian bookshelves tend to be sort of garbage like this one. So I would say, love God with all your mind. That's my application point. And to love God with all your mind means to consult works of theology and church history and biblical interpretation, classical works, you know, things like Augustine. If you're going to read a book other than the Bible, which I recommend you do, there's plenty of great books and even books that aren't about doctrine, just good books. But if we're going to read books about Christianity, let's not waste our time on this kind of thing. Let's read something that's going to challenge us rather than just affirm whatever we already believe. Something that you might disagree with, something that might be hard to get through because it was written in a different era, you know? And I think having this sort of patience to get through this kind of literature and let it kind of like 
transform us through patience and through even kind of like gritting our teeth through parts that might make us uncomfortable. Uh, this is way better for our soul than, you know, this kind of, <laughs> this kind of just really wishy-washy teaching about prayer, frankly. It's time for milk, not solid food. Well, Jeremy, to quote the Apostle Peter, there are some things Paul says which are hard to understand. But, you know, Paul and the rest of the biblical authors, including the author of Chronicles, wrote plenty of things that are really quite easy to understand. So let's just end this episode by sitting in the simple truth of Matthew 6.24. No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Well, in the words of the immortal philosopher Porky Pig, that's all, folks. We thank you for joining us. If anything you heard today has sent you into a blind theological rage, feel free to lambast us on social media. Alternatively, if you liked what you heard, have Bible verses you want us to break down, or books that you want us to review, you can send them to thejohn315podcast at gmail.com. That's thejohn315podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.